You are listening to Coffee and Consent, Episode 8. I'm Alicia. And I'm Nikki. And this is the podcast where we discuss autonomous birth, medical freedom, conscious parenting, and more. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode. We are sitting down with Taylor Kulik. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's our pleasure. Uh, Would you mind uh, introducing yourself a little bit to our listeners and sharing uh, more about your backstory and the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Taylor Kulik. I am an occupational therapist. And when I had my first child um, four years ago, a little over four years ago now, um, I just became, I realized that there was this lack of care for mothers in the postpartum period. Um, so I started really diving into that and learning about like pelvic health and just how to support women postpartum. But in the meantime, my daughter was sleeping awfully. She was like less than six months old at this point. We were having so much sleep issues. I was trying to sleep train. I was trying to follow the books and the the blogs that I saw. Um, and it was just this really dark time for me because I literally dark because I spent so long in her dark nursery every day, trying to lay her down in her crib and get her to fall asleep by herself. And it didn't work. And, and all of this. So around six months when she was six months old, um, my husband finally said one day, because she wouldn't sleep in the crib at night at this point, my husband finally said, just bring her into bed with us because that's the only way that she would sleep. And I felt so much shame. Um, and I thought I was the only one bed sharing. And then I started looking into safe bed sharing and the work of professor James McKenna. And my life was just changed because I realized this is something that parents are actually doing and maybe just not talking about, or in other cultures, it's, it's not taboo like it is in ours. Um, and so I just started learning more about that. And I kind of started focusing on a sleep and re-educating. I wanted to re-educate and encourage parents that, um, their baby is probably sleeping very normally, um, re-education about biological norms and safe co-sleeping safe bed sharing. Um, and then I found Isla Grace sleep, who is a holistic, um, sleep specialist. And I took her training course because it just really resonated with me. Um, and I now support families with sleep in a way that is holistic and always responsive and respectful of the relationship. So that's kind of my story. That's where I'm at now. So I kind of transitioned from like really wanting to focus just on supporting postpartum moms to really wanting to support moms who didn't want to sleep train, but need some support or encouragement with their child's sleep. Mm-hmm. Which there's a lot of overlap, you know, yeah. between that mm-hmm. postpartum care and this like, okay, well now that I'm not, you know, really considered postpartum, although you, you still are, but like you're beyond that six, eight, 10, 12 week kind of window. And you're like, okay, well, how do I do this? Right. <laughs> So, exactly. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to add to that, um, that I found your page when my oldest was just a few weeks old. I was like really in the thick of it. I had postpartum depression for many different reasons, but one of those was definitely, um, it was definitely exacerbated by this expectation that he should be sleeping in his own space. Mm-hmm. And we had always like intended to co-sleep or to bed share. Like I didn't have a crib or I had this little like rocker bassinet thing, but 
um, yeah, just this expectation, like he should be able to go, you know, more than an hour without me. And I was up all night crying and like, I just wasn't, wasn't coping well. And then I found your page about like normal, (laughs) normal infant sleep. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not, I don't have a baby that's missing some element of normalcy. So yeah, that was, that was huge finding your page. And then of course I met Alicia after you guys recorded the podcast episode on your platform um, and mm-hmm. started following her and trading messages and whatever. But I didn't, um, oh, I didn't even realize that was the connection. Yeah. I thought y'all knew each other before that. Mm-mm. That's cool. No, no it was, you're the yeah. connection. That's so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because you were talking about obviously everything in that episode and I'll link it in the show notes because everybody should listen to it. But then when you guys were talking about Alicia having that in kind of like the birth element, I was like, oh, I got to get my hands on that content. So um, yeah. yeah, so I started following her like right then and trading messages and stuff. So I- I don't know that the trajectory of my parenting journey or really my parenting philosophy would be what it is or where it is if I hadn't like found your page. So thank you. for all the work you do. Right. (laughs) Because without, yeah, without that, I wouldn't have understood, like, you don't need to sleep train. You don't, I mean, I wouldn't have found like all of the gentle parenting pages and like, yeah, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have found any of it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. Mm-hmm. it's my my so, passion <laughs> right so um if you would expand on some of the reasons why bed sharing is vilified or discouraged or like you said taboo um in our society what are some of the reasons why what are some of the reasons why it is taboo I mean that's a good question I don't know that we any of us really have the answer to that it's based on so the the guidelines that just since we're in the States, I'll just say the American Academy of Pediatrics, but they're not the only ones. Um, But the guidelines that they've put forth that really, you know, do vilify, vilify bed sharing and even doctors, you know, many pediatricians tell parents, you absolutely cannot bed share. You will Mm -hmm. kill your child. You will suffocate them. You will whatever. Um, Just this disgusting, awful fear-mongering language. And these guidelines are based off of really biased research that does not take into account the difference between unsafe co-sleeping and bed sharing situation. And I say co-sleeping and bed sharing because, um, so for those that don't know, co-sleeping is a broader term, um, and bed sharing is more specific. So bed sharing is the type of co-sleeping. Um, but co-sleeping also includes anything that you are within close proximity to your baby. So co-sleeping can include separate surface room sharing. So baby sleeping in a bassinet or a a pack and play. So co-sleeping can also include separate surface, um, room sharing. So the baby sleeping in a bassinet or a crib, um, it can include really unsafe forms of co-sleeping, like sleeping with a baby on a rocking chair or in the couch on the couch, which is never safe. And so a lot of this research, it just lumps all of these scenarios of co-sleeping into one category called bed sharing. Um, and so what that looks like is they're, they're, they're showing us death. They're saying, well, that while bed sharing increases risk of death or increases risk of suffocation, but they're not saying, well, these instances of death, the parents were smoking. So, right. Things that we know increase risk, the parents were smoking or the, the parent was sleeping on the couch with the baby and they suffocated or the, the bed had tons of blankets and pillows everywhere in it. Right. So when, what we found from other research 
has shown that when you actually differentiate between safe bed sharing situations and unsafe bed sharing situations, there's not really a significant risk of bed sharing when it's done safely, especially after four months old. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really know the reasons. I mean, I have my guesses about some of the reasons why mm -hmm. bed sharing is so vilified, vilified um, that maybe are a bit more controversial, but I think for your podcast <laughs> listener, listeners, it might not be that controversial, but my opinion is that um, we have to think about what industries are involved, right? So bed sharing, we know that bed sharing facilitates the breastfeeding relationship. It is the biological norm. Bed mm -hmm. sharing helps moms and babies be close to each other and, and feed throughout the night and boost breast milk supply. And there's this beautiful dynamic physiological interaction that's happening all night long. Um, and it, it encourages breastfeeding. Alternatively, when a baby is sleeping in the other room in a crib or even in the same room in a crib and mom has to get up and go walk to her baby every time they feed, that's exhausting. And many, many parents, many moms feel even just from other messaging, like with sleep training culture, they feel like they need to reduce feeds or get their baby to go for longer stretches between feeds. And so they end up often feeding less and less, and that discourages breastfeeding. So that does not facilitate the breastfeeding relationship. And so there is this huge connection between where our babies are sleeping and how they're sleeping and feeding. And so I always wonder, could it be related to the formula industry? Um, we know that pediatricians get kickbacks from formula companies. We know that mm -hmm. pediatricians are, they, they work very closely with the formula industry. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do think that that is a possible connection. I'm interested to hear if you have any, any other thoughts about connections. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, <laughs> sure. Uh, so I, I always say that I think, you know, like you said, uh, there are situations, you know, like sleeping in the rocking chair or on the couch or you know the parent is you know medicated or smoking obviously those are not the best situations and can cause a baby to die mm -hmm. but I mean I have always said that bed sharing is the scapegoat and I believe that it's the scapegoat and I believe that vaccines play a large role in it too mm -hmm. with SIDS deaths so you know I think Let's, let's not talk about the elephant in the room. Let's just blame bed sharing and tell parents that they need to sleep train right. and fear monger that because, you know, SIDS rates are, you know, I haven't even looked at the numbers recently. I, I don't even know what they are, but mm -hmm. you know, they're kind of high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which and doesn't, I mean, thing, discouraging, discouraging bed sharing doesn't keep parents from bed sharing like taylor talks about right, all the time right. like parents are still going to do it because it is the biological norm mm -hmm. we're still going to do it and lots of families that's not even like their last resort right like like mm -hmm. us we we could you know make adjustments to make it so that our kids aren't in our bed anymore but we don't want to like mm -hmm. that's that's not where we're at we don't we don't feel like we need to make those adjustments and so basically, yeah, parents are still going to be doing it, but they don't have the information to do it safely. They're just told mm -hmm. don't do it. Right. I kind of liken this too with, with the birth world, because it's, it's very strange to me how Americans are with like bed sharing and birth because mm -hmm. other cultures they have, have it. done the mm -hmm. opposite of us for thousands of years without question without having to do studies and research and all this kind of stuff so yeah. it's like 
it's that is really really strange to me <laughs> well here's what it is Alicia. We it's exactly it's exactly what we talked about in our podcast episode I think it was like episode one or two of my podcast yes. it's this paternalistic <laughs> attitude and mentality towards parenthood towards mothers yep. we are not it's this idea they don't want us to feel like we just have the answers and we're what our baby needs our bodies are perfect for our our babies. They don't want us to feel like that. They want us to be, they want to, and I don't know who I'm saying they like the system, the, I don't know, just they, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. They want to facilitate separation between mothers and babies. They Mm -hmm. want to make mothers think that they need to buy lots of products for their babies because their, their body is enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, and their birth, they want mothers to think that they don't have the power to, have a success, a a successful, whatever that means to the woman, pregnancy, childbirth, and be a mom without any other guidance. Right. It's this paternalistic idea. Right. Yeah. Because there's no money. Infantilize. Right. Yeah. Right. It it is hugely infantilizing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that all all plays a role in it. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And, and, and what happens when we empower mothers um, with that information that, Hey, actually your body's perfect for your baby and it's safe for you to bed share, or it could be safe for you to bed share if you have the right situation. Um, and you don't need to buy these products and you don't need to listen to your doctor. Like you're allowed to tell your doctor, no, um, when you're about to give birth, what happens is women are so empowered. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the system collapses. Mm -hmm. So that's a threat to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Getting into it. I'm getting into it, guys. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> and what that's we're what I tell for. people, you know, we're, I am not about changing the system. The system's not going to change. No. There's lots of people that talk about, oh, we need to change the system. And, you know, we need, no, no, no. We need to change ourselves. We need mm-hmm. to take responsibility and start making different choices. Mm-hmm. That's where the change is. It's with mm-hmm. us. It's with that responsibility. Yeah. We need a, and I, a different system. <laughs> That mm-hmm. isn't a system, but isn't, it a, isn't system. a system. Right. right. Have to be that a isn't system. a system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, what are some examples of misinformation or disinformation, depending on the situation, um, regarding safe bed sharing or the breastfeeding relationship? Yeah, I still don't know the I still don't know the difference between misinformation and disinformation. I think this is intentional. Yeah, I think um, is what I read. Is yeah, in, this misinformation is on purpose. That's good. I've been wondering about yes. that because all of these new terms are coming up to discredit <laughs> people. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, okay. So between bed sharing and the breastfeeding relationship, hmm, some misinformation. I mean, what isn't misinformation really? Right. Um, oh. we just talked a little bit about the connection between bed sharing and the feeding relationship, and how there's so many entanglements within the medical system and the formula industry and these guidelines that they're telling us not to bed share. Um, I'm trying to think of like, so, I mean, I think one of the biggest just misconceptions that people believe is that breastfeeding increases SIDS risk Bre- or mm. not, sorry, not breastfeeding, oh. bed sharing, bed sharing. Mm-hmm. People will say that bed sharing increases SIDS risk. Bed sharing doesn't increase SIDS risk. Bed sharing actually has the potential if done safely mm-hmm. to reduce SIDS right. risk because um, of that dynamic physiological mm-hmm. interaction that mother and baby are experiencing together. So when mothers are bed sharing with their babies, 
baby's breathing is regulated by mom. Baby's heart rate is regulated by mom. Mom is breathing out carbon dioxide that is that can remind baby to breathe. So when we're talking about SIDS, which is defined as sudden infant death syndrome, and apparently we don't really know what causes it, which is so interesting, right? Um, because we know we know so much about the human body, but we don't know what causes SIDS. We can't um, imagine why a perfectly healthy baby would just yeah. die. Yeah. But a lot of people believe and will say that it's often the baby just stops breathing for whatever reason. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in bed with mom, baby is very unlikely to stop breathing. Or if baby does stop breathing, it's very likely that mom will notice that respond to that, wake up to that and intervene. I've, I've talked with a lot of moms, um, that have had this experience that bed sharing has saved their baby's life. If they had medical issues or something happened. Um, and so that's one misconception. The only way that bed sharing could be more dangerous is really more of a suffocation or like a, a rolling over risk. That's what, and so I think people get really confused about that. It does not increase SIDS risk. It actually would decrease SIDS risk. If anything, also, we know that breastfeeding reduces SIDS risk. And so if we're thinking again about how the bed sharing, um, bed sharing facilitates the breastfeeding relationship, that would also be a factor that would potentially decrease SIDS risk. So, um, I think that's a misconception because when we're talking about like bed sharing risk and stuff, we really have to be able to define terms and be really clear about what we're talking about. And people don't get that people, people think it's SIDS and it would be suffocation. It would be hazards in the bed that are unsafe for baby. Or like, again, mom is sleeping on the couch and baby rolls into the crack and suffocates or something like that. All of these deaths are tragic, but like, again, we have to be able to be really clear on what we're talking about and what the actual potential risks are. You know, and which ones are avoidable? Because right. I know that in one of your episodes, I don't remember if it was the one with Alicia, but you were talking about basically the infant deaths between the crib and the parents' bed. If you look at it, they're like 50 50, right? And then, mm-hmm. but the ones yeah. that are in the parents' bed, like 90% of them were avoidable, were because yeah. they had pillows or the bed was really mm-hmm. up high or the parents were smokers yeah. or whatever these like variables are, but that basically all of the deaths that happened in the parents' bed were because of unsafe sleeping arrangements. So it's not like, oh, just sleeping, just sleeping in your parents' bed is dangerous. Right. Yeah. So that's, um, that was, I believe research from the lullaby trust foundation, which they're out of the UK, but yeah, that's really interesting research. It was basically, I think you're right. It was like a 50, 50 split down the middle of where, where infant deaths happen Mm -hmm. crib versus co-sleeping. And I think they use the term co-sleeping over bed sharing. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, they said 90% of those co-sleeping deaths were preventable with education about Mm -hmm, safe mm -hmm. co-sleeping. So that's a huge factor. And you know, it's one thing to be against bed sharing, right? It's one thing to be like, I don't feel comfortable with bed sharing. I'm not going to do that. Fine. Don't do it. It's another to be adamant that nobody should be bed sharing. And not only that, but nobody should even have access to safe bed sharing information because that Mm -hmm. is dangerous. No, Mm -hmm. it is far more dangerous to withhold that information from parents because it's going to happen. Like you said, it is natural. It is almost impossible for a lot of, a lot of moms Mm -hmm. to not fall asleep while Mm -hmm. nursing their babies. It's, you know, most breastfeeding mothers are bed sharing at least some of the time. They might Mm -hmm. not admit that they're bed sharing, Mm -hmm. but when, so when researchers ask them, you know, like very specifically, are you bed sharing for like 30 minutes at night? Or like, what does your sleep arrangement look like? Most breastfeeding mothers are bed sharing for even a small, tiny portion of the night. Mm -hmm. And so when we withhold that information from them, we are just putting parents in more risky situations. 
mm-hmm. and babies, babies and parents and, and, more. and facilitating that culture of shame that you talk about. Right. Like I 100% lied to my son's pediatrician when he asked where my son was sleeping. Yeah. So many parents do. And then we have this other problem because of that. It's like this cycle, right? Because mm-hmm. pediatricians are telling parents, pediatricians have a view of how they believe ba- most babies are sleeping. And mm-hmm. that view is determined by what they're mm-hmm. hearing in their offices from mm-hmm. parents. And so when parents feel ashamed of their baby sleep habits or location, um, they're not going to share. And so they're going to, they're going to kind of go along with what the pediatrician is saying. Oh, your baby's sleeping in your crib. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, your baby's sleeping through the night. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So right now we have so many parents lying to their pediatrician because they're scared to tell them otherwise. And then pediatricians are confirming their own previously held mm-hmm. biases about how babies mm-hmm. are sleeping. And, and then they, if there's one random sleep. parent that's like, oh yeah, they sleep in my bed. Then the pediatrician's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. You're yeah. the anomaly. You need to yeah. change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there was mm-hmm. even, I went, um, I went to my nephew's pediatrician appointment with my sister-in-law just to help her out. Um, and they asked where the baby was sleeping. And my sister-in-law was like, oh, in a crib. (laughs) He totally wasn't. He was in their bed. (laughs) The exact same thing that we've all done. And they were, she was just handed like this, this sleep training handout, which you Taylor have talked about being handed before, but what she wasn't handed was safe bed sharing information. And so the likelihood that safe bed sharing was happening was a lot lower. Like, would you rather, Yeah. yeah. Would you rather give people access to information that is helpful right. or, or one that fits your agenda is yeah. really the question that it comes down to. Yeah. And it's, you know, life is a, life is risky. There are no decisions that you make in life that don't carry risk of, to some degree. You know, we could, we go out, we choose to go out in our car every day because it's a necessity for many of us. It, if we chose to stay at home, that's also not risk-free because then what are the risks of staying at home and isolating yourself from everybody? Mental mm-hmm. health risks. Okay. There's, mm-hmm. there's lots of risks. You won't make money from work. You know, there's so many things we could talk about, but every decision carries risk. And the problem with the bed sharing, crib sleeping, controversy, controversy debate, whatever you want to call it, is that people have placed crib sleeping on this pedestal as the gold standard that carries no risk. And that's just not true because when a baby is not sleeping next to their mother, there is some amount of, um, I don't even know if risk is the right word, but there are some potential consequences from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we, to be fair, we need to present this, con- um, come to this conversation. I don't know what the word I'm thinking, come to this conversation from a balanced place of, okay, what are the risks and benefits of bed sharing? And what are the risks and benefits of crib sleeping and look at it in its entirety. And that's not what's happening in the mainstream bed sharing Mm -hmm. conversation. It's just being Mm -hmm. shut down. Don't ever do it. Crib sleeping is 100% safe. Even though we know that's not true because babies die Mm -hmm. in their cribs every day. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, tragically they do. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I get fired up about this. (laughs) It's it's just insane. Yeah. I was just listening that I I posted yesterday, um, on my story, people who are listening when this publishes, it won't still be yesterday, but, um, it was the episode that you had just released with, um, Dr. Kathleen, is it Kendall? Yeah. It's Dr. Um, Kathy Kendall Tackett. Tackett. That's right. Um, yeah, that, that, that mother, um, her husband and his, and their other child, I think had a history of sleep apnea mm-hmm. and she took the baby in to do a sleep study. And they were talking about this physiological relationship between the baby whose oxygen would drop in their sleep. And without the mother even being told about it explicitly, 
would reach over and rouse the baby and the baby would reach back up to normal oxygen levels. And so this relationship that's subconscious Mm -hmm. in most circumstances, like, you know, nobody's waking up. Oh, Hey, by the way, your baby needs to nurse. Like she's just feeling the baby. The baby's just feeling her. And like Kathleen was saying in the episode, it's just this dance between them, Mm -hmm. this give and this take and this balance. Yeah. Isn't nature amazing? When we yeah, just trust in nature, mm-hmm. when we, and just we do. don't think we're smarter than nature. I think that's the, that is really the conversation that needs to be had with, with birth and with sleep. And that is that if we're, if we're not following God's design, you know, natural pathways, what is the biological detriment then? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, at what long cost? term, yeah. mm-hmm. long-term, you know, like you said, not necessarily mm-hmm. risk, but if you're not sleeping with your baby, you know, I don't see, you know, mama cats and, you know, mama dogs and other mammals, you know, putting, oh, here, you know, kittens, you know, you're going to sleep over here and I'm going to sleep Each over kitten here. Each kitten has you its own see, crib. You don't see yeah. that. No. <laughs> you know, that no. that's, yeah, you know, from, from that perspective, sleeping away from your baby is, is nonsense. It's total, mm-hmm. it's silly, mm-hmm. but we, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty balanced view. Like I think that I don't think that everybody should bed share if they're not comfortable with it. I do love bed sharing. I do think it's super beneficial, but at the same time, um, there, we have to acknowledge that if you're not bed sharing, there are some, um, relationship connection pieces that you are not getting to experience with your baby. And professor James McKenna has talked about, um, how, it's, it is like, it's this rich dance that's happening all night. And not only in the case of a baby who has a medical, you know, issue, but there's this rich, like attunement, attachment, like connection. Mm -hmm. Babies are developing, um, brain, their, their brains are developing connections in the middle of the night based on their interactions with their caregiver, even the ones when we're sleeping. And so what are the consequences of not having that? Am I saying that babies who crib sleep are going to be destroyed and ruined and damaged for the rest of their lives? No. I mean, I cribs, I crib slept. And I would also just say, I don't have a good relationship with my parents. And I'm not saying that's exactly why there's lots of reasons for that. But there's a pattern. Um, I've seen that many, many times before. And my mom um, has gone through a lot in her, her kind of philosophy journey as so many of us do but she talks about my oldest brother. So he's, you know, almost 30 now. She would talk about, you know, he would cry, scream for an hour at night before passing Mm -hmm. out. Like she 100% did cry it out. And, you know, people, we all have issues. Like, I I don't, I don't think that there's, that it's a um, coincidence, you know, that we have this, this history, this past of this like disciplinarian kind of parenting approach and then all of these people with mental health issues like there's a lot at play with mental health issues and like you know this technology era and overstimulation and stuff like um getting away from nature yeah getting away from nature and harmful medication Mm -hmm. and and all of this it's it's a lot and die in our foods and blah 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 but I don't think that all of those other things would impact somebody to the degree that they are if that person had a solid foundation and a firm attachment to their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And even yeah. just, you know, speaking about, I think you mentioned gentle parenting, like respectful parenting earlier. There's, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have so many parents right now that are seeking for seeking different ways. We're, we're mm-hmm. trying to be more respectful. We're trying to be more, more kind and loving towards our children and find a different way. And at the same time, we are struggling with it because we are angry and reactive and we're triggered all the time. Like I'm talking about myself. Like I'm triggered about everything. I'm offended. Oh, me, 100%. Like there's a reason for that. Like I'm trying, we're trying to change. So many people are trying to consciously change, but our, our body, our body keeps the score. That's a really good book to read. Actually, our body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. Um, that's a good book about like trauma on the body, but a lot of us are suffering from traumatic childhoods. Maybe even like I, I have complex PTSD I've recently discovered. Um, so it can be like complex PTSD can be a result of just chronic, like maybe smaller traumas, traumas that seem smaller Mm -hmm. because trauma is really relative to the person that's experiencing it. Um, But Mm -hmm. over time, if you have these experiences, if you're not being hurt, if you're being spanked, if you're Mm -hmm. being, you know, threatened, like it accumulates. Yeah. And it creates these, these um, fighter, you're in a fight or flight mode. You're in a reactivity mode. And that's how I live my life right now. And I'm trying so hard to get past that. And I know Mm -hmm. so many parents are experiencing very similar things to me. Like they don't Mm -hmm. want to act the way that they're acting, Mm -hmm. but it's like, you actually can't fully you can't it's not right. 100% within your volition, um, which is fascinating. They talk about it in, um, hold on to your kids, which I know, you yeah. know, by Dr. Gordon Newfeld for people who don't, and I'll link to that too, because everybody should read it. But, um, but this, the idea that, that a brain that's in fight or flight can't also be in a state of growth. Yeah. Which is really fascinating. And like when we're putting kids in fight or flight from the time that they're very young, Right. And then we're shocked that, that they're not maturing at the same rate that people used to mature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're having all these issues that they're carrying into adulthood that then they're passing on to their children, potentially in this generational trauma cycle gets really, it's really harmful. It's not just, it, it doesn't feel isolated to just one type of behavior or one, because we are holistic people, right. we're holistic beings and it doesn't, yeah, it's not isolated to just sleep training or just right. this, this, or this, like it's, it's all of it accumulating, mm-hmm. like, like you're talking about in and manifesting in this way that, that isn't serving us. Yeah, totally. Children. And, and the way that any person experiences an event, whether it's traumatic for them or whether they're totally fine with it is so dependent on so many factors. And so of course somebody could, you know, a parent could sleep train their baby, but then, you know, they live in a super loving home. And during the day, they're very attentive and they're very respectful of their emotions and all of this. And that child could be just fine. Right. Um, but the thing is, we don't know that you don't, you can't measure that. You can't even like really measure that well into adulthood because you can't Mm -hmm. correlate. Well, what caused, like for me, what caused my attachment issues? What caused my reactivity? Like so many things did we can't isolate it to, was it sleep training or was it the fact that I got spanked all the time or, you know, whatever. Um, but when we really think about patterns, the pattern of sleep training is a very behavioral, um, behaviorism approach of let's eliminate this unwanted, undesired behavior that we don't like without really paying attention to the underlying communication and need that is happening. And I, I believe that it is reasonable to think that if a parent feels that way and approaches sleep with that philosophy, they will likely approach the rest of parenthood with that philosophy as well. Mm-hmm. Not always, but I do think that's a reasonable guess to mm-hmm. make for a lot of parents that make that decision. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, and that's that's a great segue into sleep training, which I know is yeah. When did we start talking about sleep training? <laughs> we just I know we got, um, we got up. Yeah, no, it's it's controversial, but I I don't really even understand why beyond what we've already talked about, which is that attachment is not profitable. And so yeah, would you um, expand on some of the harms or disadvantages of sleep training, even this quote unquote gentle sleep training that I know there are programs out there. I'm not going to name them here because I don't want to get into it, but there are <laughs> programs out there that, that people say, but it works. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's your response? I obviously have my own response and I know what your response is going to be, but could you share it when people say, you know, but sleep training works. So what's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where to what's start? The, so my question is always, what is, what does it mean that it works? Because the most, most of the time, the ultimate goal of a sleep training is to get the crying to stop, right? That's the goal. Like, if you really think about it, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get our baby to stop crying. Okay. So it works. So your baby stopped crying. What does that mean? Does that mean your baby is now sleeping? Does that mean your baby is calm? Does that mean your baby is sleeping? Well, does that mean your baby's sleeping through the night? The answer to all of those questions is no, and not necessarily. Um, it works, meaning you got your baby to stop crying for you. They stopped crying for you because they saw that their crying was not making a difference. You're you're not Mm -hmm. responding to them. And so of course, eventually they're going to get tired. They're going to preserve their energy and they're going to stop crying when they, when they determine that that behavior is not going to get the response that they expect and that they need. That's, I mean, that's simply my answer to does it work, right? Um, Because really the research shows us that if we're talking about does it work in terms of is my baby actually sleeping better? Um, Research shows us that no, sleep trained babies actually don't sleep much better than babies that haven't been sleep trained, but parents may sleep better because they're not being cried. um, Their baby's not signaling for them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're Mm -hmm. not waking up. And so a lot of these these studies that are... um, measuring sleep for, by parent report. So we have studies that measure baby sleep from parent report, meaning the parents are reporting when the baby's wake, how long they're awake, et cetera. And we have studies that use something called actigraphy, which is more of like, it's monitoring. I think it's like a heart. I don't know if it's a heart monitor, like it measures like physio physiology. So it's a very objective measure of sleep. And then we have some studies that use both of them. And those studies are really interesting because what those studies have found is that parental report says that baby's sleeping well, if they're sleep trained, they're not waking as often because they're not crying. Whereas actigraphy shows that the babies who are sleep trained are still waking pretty much just as much as the babies who weren't sleep trained. Does that make sense? Which is so fascinating. Yeah. So does it work? That depends on your definition of work and what your goal is. And when you really think about what your goal, and I, and I think a lot of parents don't even think about it, right? They're right. just, they go into the sleep training world thinking this is just what you do. And it's a skill, a skill that you need to provide to your Ugh. baby. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, it's not true. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah. And this idea sad. that, that parent, that babies yeah. need to be taught how to sleep because that's out yeah. there. And, and then if that's the case then of course you're going to do difficult things. Of course, it's this necessary evil that you just have to push through. It gets easier after the third day, blah, 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 blah. But if it's mm-hmm. presented as this necessary evil, because otherwise your baby would never learn how to sleep, then, right. then it makes sense that parents are like, oh, okay, then yeah, then it's fine. Then we just have to yeah. push through it because we have to do hard things all the time. Like it makes sense if you think that babies need to be taught how to sleep. Right. Or if they you think don't. that they should, right. Or if you think that they should be sleeping away from you, 
or in a way that is not normal for an infant, you know? So if you're, if yeah. you're going into it with all these prerequisites that they should be meeting yeah, and then they're not like, of course it makes sense yeah. to do it. I like to compare sleep to other bodily functions like elimination, right? So we don't teach our babies to pee and poop. They're born knowing how to pee and poop, but they're peeing, they're peeing and pooping usually in the diaper or some people do elimination communication, but I'm not going to talk about that right now, but they're peeing and pooping in the diaper, right? They're dependent on you to take care of their hygiene mm-hmm. needs and change them. Um, and the same is true for sleep. They're born knowing how to sleep, but they need more support to do mm-hmm. it. And for you mm-hmm. to help optimize their sleep mm-hmm. and they might need to sleep on top of you or next to you or whatever. Um, and then as time goes along, we, we model for them. So in the terms of like using the toilet, we model for them how to use the toilet. We maybe when they're ready, we start sitting on the toilet with them, showing them how it's done. We still wipe them. We don't just stick them on the toilet at one year old, one year old and, by themselves and yeah. leave the room. Yeah. We don't mm-hmm. do that. We don't expect them to know how to wipe themselves and pull their pants down and up. Um, and the same is true for sleep. Like we, we support them and then we can, we maybe remove a little bit of support, but we're still supporting them how they need. And it depends on the child too, right? Because mm-hmm. some children are going to need a lot more support and proximity for longer if they're more sensitive and some are not. Um, and so we're not teaching sleep and, you know, some people would argue, well, but you need to teach them to fall asleep independently. Well, no, you don't. Well, And why? Yeah. You, you don't have to teach them to fall asleep independently any more than you have to teach them to use the toilet independently, which we do to an extent, but that's through lots of time modeling and supporting. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they're like, oh, hey, I can do this on my own. And the same is true for sleep. We don't teach our, our children how to use the toilet independently by sticking them on the toilet and leaving the room. That's just not what we do. It doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. Development doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. Children de- and babies develop through relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way that I can think of to put it. It's mm-hmm. people just have wonky ideas in their head about this. They've just mm-hmm. been so confused and misguided and misled. Mm-hmm. And it makes me really sad mm-hmm. and brainwashed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and even I was just talking to my husband about it, like that, that a lot of the things that parents do or are told to do is out of fear that your child will be somehow lacking or unable to go into their adult lives with all of the things that they need. And so I was thinking about it in the context, our two and a half year old really hates loud, like humming noises, like the vacuum or the blender or leaf blower, stuff like that. So every time we vacuum, he gets a little freaked out and runs over and sits on the couch. He'll come over and like wind up the cord of the vacuum. It's not a fear of the vacuum. He just is bothered by loud noises. And every time we're like, okay, sit up there for as long as you want. He, you know, asks, can I get down? I'm like, you can get down whenever you'd like to like, but by supporting that and not being like, don't be a baby, you know, or like, it's fine. What's the big deal? Like by not, by not making him think that he is doing something wrong by being afraid of that, Mm -hmm. like we're giving him the confidence that we understand that he's fine. Like, and, and parents who would say, you know, don't be a baby or come over here and touch it or, you know, for kind of force it in that way are doing it because they're afraid that they're going to have a 16 year old who's afraid of the vacuum. Right. Like, you know, they think that it's, it's this long-term damage that would be Mm -hmm. done by supporting a child who's having emotional dysregulation. Right. And what we really know 
um, you know, is that when we force something on our kids, it's gonna, it's most of the time it backfires, especially when we're talking about emotions, emotional regulation, independence, things like this, specifically independence. When we're forcing independence on our child who is not ready for that level of independence, it backfires because, Mm -hmm. um, children need to depend. They need to be able to depend deeply on us. That's how they're designed. And they need to know that they can depend on us. And when we allow that and we allow nature to unfold as it should, only then can do they have the confidence when they're, you know, when it's developmentally appropriate to then go out and be independent and be their own person and do things independently. It's those, you know, a lot of parents find that when they're like, for example, if their child who can walk on their own really just wants to be held. If you're saying, no, no, I'm not going to hold you. You can walk. You know, they might be having a bad day. They might be having a rough time, but you're saying, no, no, you need to walk because you can walk. That child is going to get more clingy. That child mm-hmm. is not going to be like, oh, you're right. I can walk. Let me go walk mm-hmm. on my own. No, they're going to start crying more and they're going to start holding onto your leg and they're going to get even more clingy because they feel like their attachment with you is threatened. They don't feel like they can fully depend because you're not allowing them to. Um, and so that's what we have to understand, especially related to sleep and emotional regulation is that, um, we have to allow them to depend deeply first and we have to do everything for them first. And that is how that will facilitate dependence will facilitate independence. And we kind of think of it in the opposite way Mm -hmm. that we need to just force the independence and push it. And, Mm -hmm. um, we really don't need to do that. And it's not effective. Mm -hmm. Well, and thinking of it in the context of being a relationship, I don't, I think that if you asked a parent you know, they would say, of course I have a relationship with my child, but I don't think they think of it as this like ongoing thing to foster. Mm -hmm. And, and like you've talked about on your page, um, Taylor, like, you know, what, what would you say if you came and asked your spouse to hold you? And they were like, well, you can walk. Yeah. Like, why would I need to hold you? (laughs) Like, it would be ridiculous. We would feel so hurt by that. Yeah. But when mm-hmm. our child does it, it's like, okay, well, you just need to learn. You just need to learn that I'm not going to be here all the time, which right. why, but, but yeah, it's this idea that, that if you don't force this on them, that they're going to be missing it later in life. Yeah. And like you said, it's this, it's this fear-based response. I think that's what most, much of mainstream parenting is, is fear. You're, you're, you feel like you need to act now because of fear and anxiety about the future. And in reality, if we just trust we trust our kids. We trust God. We trust nature. Most of the time things will be just fine. And our fear, we wouldn't need to have those fears. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's sad. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, Oh, that's what I was going to say. You were mentioning like the relationship, the child parent relationship Mm -hmm. is this ongoing thing. And, and yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying here that like, if you, if your child isn't sleeping independently, or, you know, if you're having struggles, like you're a horrible, neglectful parent, like we all, I think have struggles in our relationship at specific times with our kids. Like, even when we're intentional and conscious of this, I really struggle with my relationship with my four-year-old. Um, like we are tough. We butt heads. She's just like me. And I have a hard time connecting with her. And so there's no shame in feeling like you need support to have to foster a relationship with your child. That doesn't mean that you're neglectful or a bad parent at all. Um, and it's I think the we same with normalize marriage. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we should normalize that. Like we're all broken humans. And so we all are going to have some struggles in our relationships, including with our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that, I think that in, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of my own um, ancestry, my grandmother, how she was raised and then how my mom was raised that this idea that, that your child is a person with yeah. emotional needs is like completely foreign 
mm-hmm. like to to my grandmother at least and then obviously was was passed down to my mom like my mom didn't pick out her own clothes until she was married wow like and this this like this idea yeah that that kids are to be instructed and that any Mm -hmm. pushback is you know defiance and you need to like beat that out of them figuratively or literally like it's not it's not producing great results no. And we're seeing that, but not everyone wants to admit that it's attributed to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're raised like that, how do you then go off and be an adult and function on your own? And then also we repeat the patterns that we're used mm-hmm. to. So what happens when somebody defies me? What happens when my kids defy me? What happens when my husband makes me mad? Then I want to hit him. Okay. Like that's just the reality. Like our urge mm-hmm. when, if we've been spanked, a lot of times our urge is towards violence and aggression. Like mm-hmm. that's my urge. I ha- I'm, I'll be the first to admit that. Like I, my instinct when my daughter does something that really triggers me is to be aggressive and, and be violent. And that is something mm-hmm. that I have had to learn to really control. And sometimes that means I do leave the room because it's better for me to leave the room than it is for me to hit her or do something that I regret. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like we're really broken. Like we are not, a, this is not a healthy group of adults. Like our generation, right. we are not a healthy, well-rounded, adjusted group of adults. So clearly something isn't working. Right. And, and I was, um, I just saw, we were coming home from an outing and I was scrolling on Instagram and it was like, you know, at some point your child needs to feel like the sun rises and sets with them. Yeah. But if you said that to someone of an older generation, they would think, well, they're just going to grow up to be self-centered. They're going to think that everyone thinks mm-hmm. the sun rises and sets with them, but that's mm-hmm. not the case. No, like, I don't know how you can say, you know, attachment will produce this, this, and this when the opposite is producing that. Right. I don't yeah, know. Now we have, say- we have a group of people who want to be validated by every single person and can't stand when anybody doesn't like them or disapproves of them. Like it's wild. Well, and they're actually. all medicated for depression yeah. and anxiety and they're incapable of self-regulating and mm-hmm. fostering healthy relationships and mastering their own actions and thoughts. Like how is, how can you say that attachment would produce that when right. we're seeing that detachment is producing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always well, think about you... the uh, Romanian study that I have it linked on my um, bio too. My mom told me about it. I think I shared it with you, Taylor, a while back. It's like yeah. in the, maybe the sixties, but they mm-hmm. did a study on um, children in an orphanage and like half they, half of the kids, they would hold to feed them and play with them and interact with them. And the other half, they would only pick them up to change them and feed them. And that was it. And like the babies that it's called something neglect. They, a lot of them died, mm-hmm. you know? So there, yeah. so to say that it has no impact or that, you know, there's, there's not any negativity or, you know, a negative outcome, mm-hmm. I guess yeah. is that's really not the case. Yeah. And I think, right. you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's really extreme. You know, people that's not, you can't compare that to sleep training and we can't, it is, it is extreme, but there is a net, a negative effect. And so I think we right. can look at, we can know that we can have all of the information that we have about brain development and attachment and all of this. And we can understand that even the smaller choices that we're making that are not um, necessarily that extreme, that they're not an extreme example of neglect can still have an impact 
on mm-hmm. our children. And do. Yeah. yeah. And certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, just this idea that, uh, that holding your baby to sleep or feeding them to sleep is creating a bad habit, right? That they're, that they're yeah. going to expect that forever. Why is that a bad thing? Right. It's well, why right. is it a bad thing, thing that your children, that your, your children rely on you and can come to you when they have a need? And in right. reality, and they won't expect that forever. I don't right. know any well-adjusted, well-rounded 18 year old who doesn't have like cognitive deficits or a developmental delay that is still relying on their parents to hold them to sleep. I just right. don't, that's not a right. thing. Yeah. If, if that is the yeah. case, there's something else going on. And right. I have compassion for those families, but it's not because they held their baby to sleep or rocked them to right. sleep or breastfed them to sleep or whatever. And just like that toilet example, the toilet training, not even toilet training, toilet learning example. Um, is it a bad habit if we wipe our baby, our, our two-year-old's butt? Are they going to rely on us to wipe their butt forever? Right. No, at some point right. they're going to be able to do that on their own, both physically and on a mental cognitive level, they're going to be like, Oh, I want to be independent now. Mm-hmm. Right. Because independence happens. Like our kids mm-hmm. naturally go through phases where they really want independence. And once they can, their desire for independence matches their physical ability for independence. They're going to do it on their own if mm-hmm. they've been allowed to depend. Right. Mm-hmm. So wiping our baby's butts, isn't a bad habit. Changing their diapers isn't a bad habit nursing them isn't a bad habit before they, and I'm even thinking about like a feeding perspective, but like nursing in general, nursing to sleep is also not a bad habit. Right. Like making food for your three-year-old. Does that right. mean that they're never going to learn how to cook? Like that's right. ridiculous. When you apply it to yeah. all other examples, it's mm-hmm. insane. But then in this, yeah. in this example, moms are feeling bad because nursing to sleep is the only way they can get their baby to go to sleep without Right. Emotional tax on the baby and on the mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. it's just not, it's not, it's not a fear that parents need to have. It's just, it's an exhausting fear that we don't need to be weighed down with during our mm-hmm. early days of parenthood. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's totally, um, I don't want to invalidate people's emotions, but it is, I think an emotion that has been, um, brought upon us by a really big industry that of is course. harming us and it's, it's mm-hmm. not founded. And I mean, if you don't want to nurse to sleep, that's one thing, right? You can certainly make a change um, if, if you feel like you need to. But I do believe that most, and in my experience, the moms that I talk to, most of them actually don't have a problem nursing to sleep or rocking to sleep or holding to sleep. Some of them do um, for whatever reason, but it's not that they have a problem supporting their child to sleep. It's that they've been sold this lie that they need to fear that and that it's the wrong thing to be doing and that they're harming their child. If you think mm-hmm. you're harming your child, who wouldn't be fearful? Of, of course. Who wouldn't want to change what they're doing if they think what's doing is harmful? Right. Well, and, um, like you were talking about with Dr. Kathy, like this, this expectation that you would need to go back to work because families, at least in the U S don't have adequate family leave when a baby is born. So of course at two, four, six, you know, some, some women, depending on like the company they work for the state that they live in would get more, they'd get a month or two off, but Mm -hmm. most don't. You know, and then this, this idea that you're going to work all day and then come home and have a baby that needs to be on you literally all night. Yeah. That's terrifying. Like that's legitimately not possible for, for a brain to tolerate. 
Well, and especially when you're, when you're, especially when you're told that your baby can't sleep with you and they need to be put in the crib. Right. Right. Of course. Because I will say that I didn't work. I didn't go back to work full time, but after I had my daughter, I did go back to work two or three days a week at the hospital. And I had to be up at five 30 in the morning. Um, and she was like a reverse cycler for a while. Um, and I will tell you that that was part of the reason we were so miserable until six months when we started bed sharing. And once we were bed sharing, we were pretty much fine. I mean, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's the case for every woman, but like, that's absolutely a factor is that women are going back, back to work so early and it's tough. And it's like, a lot of times people will come to me and like say, well, basically your message doesn't validate me because I have to go back to work what do I do? And I'm like, okay, like here are all of the things that you can do that are holistic that can improve everybody's sleep. But then that's not enough for them either. It's like people want a solution. And that is why sleep training is, has come to be. But Mm -hmm. the fact that having a baby and being a a woman and a mom in this society are not like compatible right now, Mm -hmm. this society is not conducive to motherhood and babyhood. Mm -hmm. That does not change facts. That does not Mm -hmm. change. Like I have compassion for women. Yeah. But it does not change. And I think Alicia, this is where like one of your personal phrases comes in. Sometimes we take person, we have to start taking personal responsibility and creating change. And I know that that's not totally possible for every situation and every woman. Um, but there are ways, I mean, there are ways bed share, um, uh, find a caregiver or a family member who understands, or at least educate them about biological sleep norms. Someone that will hold your baby doesn't have to only be moms that are holding their baby. I mean, that's the biological design, but we were also designed to, to live and parent within a village. And so it's not just moms that are supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. everything. It's babies are, are meant to be attached to multiple caregivers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so find somebody in your village that will hold your baby and sleep with your baby and rock your baby to sleep, you know? Um, so there is this element of personal responsibility and the fact that things are tough right now. And sometimes we just have to accept that it's not ideal. And it's like, I'm not going to tell you because you, I don't, this isn't even what you were saying, Nikki, but like, you just made me think of like all of the conversations I have. I, people want me to tell them, Oh, never mind. This doesn't apply to you and your baby because you have to go back to work. No, it does. And I'm sorry for that. And I wish that it wasn't the case. And I wish you didn't have to go back to work, but this is still true. All, everything we're saying is still true. You know, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What I'm saying? Oh yeah. Know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And that people don't, they don't understand and they don't see unless they're, unless they're living it, experiencing it firsthand mm-hmm. that our society is deeply anti-mother and anti-family. Yes. yes. And even this, where we are, where most families have to be a two income family, most mothers have to go back to work mm-hmm. in order to literally put food on their table that's not right. Like something, something is lacking in, in other areas of our lives. Yeah. If that's, if that's Mm -hmm. the expectation, right? Like Mm -hmm. the, the idea that a woman needs to be career driven. Right. Is not right. Like if a woman wants that and wants to pursue that and understands the cost of that, then, then, you know, people are going to do what they want to do. And that's not what I'm here to fight about, but but the idea that you have to, right. Or, or the reality that you have to, it's not fair and it's not right. And most don't even understand that they have a choice because it's just this expectation. You're going to go to college. You're going to get a job. You're going to have all these student loans to pay off. Nobody can, nobody stops to tell women 
young girls growing up, Hey, you might want to consider that you might meet a man and you might decide to get married and you might have kids and you may want to stay home with those kids. Nobody told me that. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was, I knew that mom stayed home, but that just wasn't like an option that was presented to me. And I didn't understand the, the, the repercussions of me going through school. Not that I regret it. Um, but having all of my student loans and like, Literally, there are so many women in situations where they actually do want to stay home now that they have a family, but they have to work to pay off their mm-hmm. student debt mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they have thousands of dollars a month in student loans to pay mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is tragic. And of course, we're not really told about infants and how to care for infants and biological norms. And if we if we had a more of a like widespread cultural understanding of how babies are supposed to behave and how they're meant to be cared for. I think that it would be more open, of like, to, you know what I mean? Yeah. But instead, mm-hmm. like people mm-hmm. just think if you don't have a baby, like you just think babies just sleep through the night in, in their crib. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we're not talking about this. People aren't talking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, we've had this conversation before Taylor and I, um, because yeah. my oldest is 15 and this is a conversation that my husband and I have had with her many times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to go to college, you know, if you, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. If you, if you want to be a stay at home mom, if you want to marry young and be a stay at home mom or stay at home wife and whatever, you know, then, and that, that to me, to, in my opinion, to me, that is more valuable mm-hmm. than, mm-hmm. you know, a, as a mom whose child is 15 years old, if she said, you know what, I want to be, I want to get married young, you know, find somebody and, you know, have kids and be a stay-at-home mom I mean nothing I would be like overjoyed you know but you know but this this it's like we've like we've talked about before you know this there's a lot of nuance and a much this is very complex this whole conversation there's many layers to this um yeah what I think what it all boils down to is choice and Oh yeah. There's this, there's this, um, illusion of choice right now in culture that women just have a choice to do and be whatever they want. But in reality, we don't, we We don't don't. have a choice to do whatever. A lot of women don't have a choice. I have a choice. Um, but a lot of women don't have a choice and because you don't know your choices unless you're presented with good information that, that fully, you fully understand all of the choices. And that's the problem is that girls are being sold a lie. They're being sold fairy tales. They're not being given Mm -hmm. realistic information about what it's like to have children. Um, and then, so they don't fully understand all of the options and they don't fully understand what's going to happen when they make certain decisions. So it's this illusion of choice without a reality of choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's almost like the opposite from you, Taylor. Like my mom was always a stay at home mom. I remember a handful of times that she had like very short-lived part-time work, you know, being a caregiver for an older person, driving them around and doing, doing like little, little jobs like that, but she never had a job. She was, we were all homeschooled. She was always a stay at home mom. And that was very normal to me. Like when I, Mm -hmm. when I, right before I met my now husband, I was thinking that I would go to school to be a midwife. And then when I met him and we realized like, we're going to be getting married as soon as possible and hopefully having like a really big family. I was like, okay, well then I'm not going to be a midwife because I'm not going to put having a family on hold. And I'm not going to try to get up and coming in my business with small children Mm -hmm. So I chose a family over that, but the idea, the expectation that, that the mom stays home Mm -hmm. and takes care of the children was very normal to me, Mm -hmm. which is obviously not, not for everybody, but yeah, but yeah, it's like my husband and I already talk about not presenting college 
and the four-year degree and the career as like the gold standard as, as even a goal that's for everyone. Like, yeah. And I mean, really when you're thinking about career, yeah, even like, even beyond just like motherhood and wanting to stay at home college, (laughs) there's so many other issues with college too. So yeah. 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 That's so interesting. That was the trajectory in his family was like, you finish high school and you go to college and you figure it out, like what you want to do along the way. And that just doesn't make any sense to us. So we're never going to present college as like the thing to do. Right. Right. Because if you ask people half the time, why did you go to college? They'd be like, oh, to get a good job. Yeah. But what does that how many people, how many people people aren't even using their degree? How many people even can't find a job? Thousands and thousands of dollars in debt, not working in the field that they have a degree in. I can't tell you how many people I met. I worked at a coffee shop in college. I worked at Starbucks and I can't tell you how many people I met just working at a coffee shop for a few years that were working at Starbucks that had graduated from college and had a useless mm-hmm. degree that they couldn't find a job mm-hmm. to. And so they were working a minimum mm-hmm. wage job and paying off student loans. Yeah. I mean, I, I experienced the same thing when I was working in restaurants, half the servers had yeah. four-year degrees that yeah. they weren't using. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously stuff like trade schools are a viable option and and so yeah. On and so oh yeah, on. definitely. Yeah, bring, not, back, not bring back apprenticeships, like, you know, right? Yeah. Bring back, yeah. Totally, totally. This, it reminds yeah. me of a conversation I overheard between my daughter, my oldest, who's 15 and someone else. And the person said to her that, you know, you really need to go to college and, um, you know, this is something that you really need to do. Um, and she, my daughter responded, well, what if I don't want to go to college? And the response was, well, you need to go because I want you to go. <laughs> and I, I just walked away because Mama Alicia, a girl. Coming out. I just walked away. You know, I was like, mm. okay, she, she's a big girl. She's smart. She can handle herself. And you know, I, I don't even know what she responded. What a weird thing to away. say. What a but, weird thing. But, but the conversation about this needs to start happening in families and extended families, you know, to be to be realistic and to realize that there are choices you know like I went to nursing school I was a single mom for a while with my oldest and when I met my husband and I was pregnant with my second child we had the conversation I was like look you know when this baby is born I'm not going to work so we're going to figure this out because Mm -hmm. that to me was the priority Mm -hmm. yeah that was you know, yeah, not everybody 100%. has not everybody has that option and I totally get that because like I said you know I worked and went to school full-time <laughs> my baby's being loud full-time while I was in nursing school you know for like the first four years of her life mm-hmm. yeah but, that you was know, it's a priority thing that was just like us we were between leases and had to move back in with my parents for a couple months because we were like this this is the priority like the alternative is someone else taking care of our baby all yeah. day or, or yeah. all night. You know, if, if I was mm-hmm. going to go back to serving and working dinner shifts and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah. that was the priority. And we were like, uh, kind of at any cost, like anything that, oh, yeah. <laughs> anything that still, that still is possible. And I don't, I don't know that my husband regrets getting his degree. I think he might regret what, um, what major but um but yeah I think that he would have done much better going for going for a trade school or an apprenticeship of some kind and going and and entering directly into the workforce at a 
place where you have an opportunity to <laughs> and care for your family because yeah he mm-hmm. he was a was working you know at restaurants and like he was a car mechanic for a while and like you know not not using his mm-hmm. degree at all and then he was like okay well that was a waste you know so yeah so yeah this idea that that you have to because that's the thing to do just doesn't make sense for most people right. so getting back very off track there but it's also related it's because it's about very, choice yeah. and yeah. about knowing your options and not being like one people are not one size fits all right that's ultimately like I think what all of us kind of believe in and to. talk mm-hmm. about so mm-hmm. well yeah and and prioritizing the family and understanding yeah. what it takes you know to to raise good people mm-hmm. right so what um what resources do you have to offer us, uh, Taylor or, and Alicia, feel free to throw anything out there too. What resources do I have? So I have, mm-hmm. um, I have comprehensive e-courses. I have an infant sleep course and a toddler sleep course. I have a podcast called let's sleep on it, reclaiming parenthood. Um, I also offer a couple of webinars every month. So I kind of rotate the topics, um, but I'll do like lower cost webinars that are about a certain transition or something. Um, and then I have a team member. I don't currently offer one-to-one consults, but I do have a team member that does one-to-one consults and she's amazing. She's like really kind and like a lot nicer than I am. Um, so people, really, <laughs> people really like her. If you don't want, if you don't like my I need attitude one of those. and my sass. Yeah. yeah. I need um, so yeah, and you can find those at um, my website, taylorkulik.com. And then I'm on, I'm on Instagram a lot, like sharing free information and posts. And I do, I try to do a weekly um, Q&A on my Instagram account, which is at taylorkulik is my handle. So Awesome. Well, do you have anything else for us? I do not. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. We uh, will so hopefully welcome. talk to you again soon. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week. That's it for today, everyone. Follow us on Instagram at coffee and consent. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.